You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Ezekiel chapter 40. We're nearing the end of the study because there's 48 chapters in Ezekiel. We made it all the way to chapter 40. And if you notice on the outline, we've made it to the final part of the outline. We've made it to part number 5, chapters 40 through 48. And just to be honest with you, Ezekiel is a very difficult book to preach. It, it's, uh, it's, it's challenging. And tonight it just gets harder. Like the degree of difficulty just keeps going up. So uh, bear with me as I try to relate uh, God's Word and and apply God's truth uh, from this uh, prophetic book. But if you look there in your notes, the book of Ezekiel uh, does divide up into five, five categories. And this is a very, very broad outline. But if you remember, in chapters 1 through 3, we studied the prophet's call. If you remember... Uh, because of Israel's disobedience to the Lord, because they had turned their back to God, God had allowed the Babylonian Empire to come and conquer them, to overthrow them, to destroy uh, their homeland, and then to take thousands of the Jews from their home back to Babylon. And that time period is called the Babylonian captivity or the Babylonian exile. And during that time when many Jews were uh, were taken by force from their homeland, God called a priest who was one of those exiles named Ezekiel to, to share with the people there, the Jews there, some prophetic messages. And we see that call in chapters 1 through 3. The second part of the outline is uh, there's a message of judgment for Jerusalem and Judah. So he speaks in chapters 4 through 24 specifically to God's people, to the Jews. And again, God's trying to get their attention to say, listen, I've sent, uh, I've sent devastating judgment against you. Uh, turn to me. I'm the, the one true God. Turn to me. I am the Lord. But then in part three, not only does God uh, speak to the Jews, he speaks beyond them to other nations in that area. He has some messages for foreign nations. And the, the, the messages are very similar in nature. You need to realize God says, I'm the one true God. I am the Lord. Turn to me. Worship me. Follow me. And then in chapter or part 4, uh, chapters 33 through 39, there's a message after the fall of Jerusalem. So even though um, many Jews have been taken captive into Babylon, uh, there were still some Jews in Jerusalem. And God allowed the Babylonians to go against that city in waves. And finally, in 586 B.C., there was a devastating wave where the Babylonians burned down the city. And they took even more Jews back into captivity. And Ezekiel had been saying to the Jews already in exile, there's devastation coming. The temple's going to be destroyed. And after the temple is destroyed, which is kind of the, the final, uh, final act of God's judgment against the Jews... Uh, Ezekiel has some messages for them. And in these messages, he's, he's sharing with them, in the midst of the destruction, there, there, are some, there, are some, uh, there is some daylight. There is some hope out there. And that leads us to part five, which is a vision of restoration 
chapters 40 through 48. So that's where we are. We found ourselves, we found ourselves in part five. Now here's a summary of this book. From exile in Babylon, Ezekiel's stunning visions and startling symbolic acts were prophecies for the Israelites to teach God's sovereign plan over them in the history of his kingdom, so that they shall know that I am the Lord. So he's speaking through Ezekiel, trying to get their attention. And he uses, he uses some symbolic acts, he uses some uh, very direct teaching and preaching to get their attention. But here in chapter 40, we see that Ezekiel's given a final vision that God wants him to communicate to his people. And I want to start by looking at chapter 40, verse 1. Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, so this is again 14 years after the devastation of Jerusalem, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. And again, this is a vision, not physically, brings him to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. He was standing in the gateway, and the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So God's about to show him something marvelous, and he wants him to go back and tell the people what he sees. What does he see? Look in verse 5. Behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area. So thus begins the description of the temple that God is showing Ezekiel in this vision. So what I want to do tonight, to kind of set the stage, we'll get through chapter 43 hopefully, is I want to discuss... This temple. In fact, I want to share with you some differing views about which temple this vision um, uh, refers to. And then I want to pull from the text uh, some things that we should learn from this vision of the temple, some things that God wanted his people to learn from this vision of the um, temple. But before we do that, just kind of a quick history over the temple. So, uh, the Lord set up for his people a way for them to come before him in worship and a way to carry out the sacrificial system that God instituted in the days of Moses. You remember uh, God told them to build an ark, uh, and, and on that ark was a mercy seat. And over the ark, God would, would manifest his presence among his people. And in the days of Moses and uh, Joshua, uh, the, the dwelling place for the ark or the structure that surrounded the ark was temporary. They would pack it up and take it with them. It was mainly a, a, a tent, a, a, a tabernacle that housed the ark of the covenant. Uh, but then in the days of Solomon, uh, based upon David's desire, Solomon's father's desire, Solomon built a permanent structure in the city of Jerusalem on the, the, the mount area, the temple mount area, and Solomon's temple was a glorious, beautiful structure. I mean, it was something to behold. One of the ancient wonders of the world. And it was in this temple, this permanent structure, 
that housed, uh, in which it was in the structure that the, the Ark of the Covenant was housed. And the people of Israel would gather around the temple to, to again, carry out the sacrificial system and to worship the one true God. Well, they turned from God, they, they began to worship false gods, and God sent prophets to warn them. They did not heed the warnings of the prophets, so God sent the Babylonian Empire against them. And in 586 B.C., Solomon's temple was destroyed. It, it was obliterated by the Babylonians. Well, after a few decades, the uh, people of God were allowed to leave captivity in Babylon. Actually, they were overthrown by the, the uh, Persians, and the Persians allowed them to leave and go back to their home. And the Jews returned in waves and one of their priorities was to rebuild the temple. They wanted to have this place, this central place of worship. You can read about that in the book of Ezra. That's what the book of Ezra is about. They returned to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah is about them returning to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. So that temple is often called Zerubbabel's temple because Zerubbabel was the leader that helped to marshal the resources and organize the people and lead in the work to rebuild that temple. This temple, Zerubbabel's temple, uh, did not compare to Solomon's temple. It, it, it did not come close to the grandeur in size. They, they basically used mosaic measurements, the, 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 the measurements that God gave to Moses to begin to rebuild the temple. And some of the older Jews that remembered the glory of Solomon's temple even wept when they saw how small this temple was going to be. That's Zerubbabel's temple. That would be temple number two. Well, remember in Jesus' day, there was a temple, right? He would go into the temple to teach and to preach. That was Herod's temple. And really what Herod's temple was, it was, a, it was an addition of Zerubbabel's temple. So Herod added on to it, made it bigger and grander, and it was something to behold in Jesus' day. But we know in AD 70, the Romans came into Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple. So if you go to Jerusalem in today's time, there is a mount where the temple was. There's a, a, a big wall that was part of the, the structure called the Wailing Wall, but the temple is not there. The temple has been destroyed. So, we read about this vision. And Ezekiel sees a temple. And the question is, which temple is he seeing? Good question, right? Well, there are differing views. So, I'm going to give you the differing views. I'm going to tell you which one I think it is. And we'll go from there. All right? No questions tonight, by the way. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. View number one. Some believe this temple that he sees is the temple that was built post-captivity. The Zerubbabel's temple that we read about in the book of Ezra. You can read Haggai, Zechariah, these minor prophets. They're preaching to the people to encourage them as they rebuild the temple. And, and some scholars believe this is the post-captivity temple. But here's the problem with that view. The measurements don't add up. All right? The measurements of Zerubbabel's temple don't add up with the larger measurements found in this passage. So the temple that, that Ezekiel sees is bigger than the temple that was rebuilt uh, under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Does that make sense? So I don't think this is Zerubbabel's temple. That's my view. But some do believe that. Number two, 
Some believe this is the temple during the tribulation. Uh, as you see end times events unfold, we read about a great tribulation. We've talked about that some. And the Bible's clear, Revelation chapter 11, that there is a temple structure that is built during the tribulation period. And it becomes kind of a, a, a dramatic centerpiece for the, the, the different events that unfold during the tribulation. And some believe this is the, the tribulation temple. You can read about that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, where the Antichrist sets himself up as God in the middle of the temple, claims to be God, demands worship. A lot of things happen there at that temple. But some people believe this is the, the tribulation uh, temple. Um, again, uh, I don't hold to that, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Let me give you a couple more views. The third view is that this is the temple during the millennial reign of Christ. The millennial reign of Christ. So, again, this is really broad brush, but the Bible teaches of a tribulation. It teaches that Christ returns. When Christ returns, he sets up a millennial kingdom, a thousand, literal thousand-year reign on the earth. And uh, different passages, Isaiah Ezekiel, Revelation, uh, indicate that during this millennial reign, there will be a temple on the earth. Is this the same tribulation temple or kind of refurbished uh, uh, temple from the tribulation? Or is this a brand new temple? We, we don't know, but some people believe this is the temple during the millennial reign of uh, Christ uh, that will be a centerpiece of worship during the, the reign of Christ. And again, we'll talk some more about that in a moment. A fourth view is this, the, the temple that, that Ezekiel sees is an extended metaphor of God's presence with his people. So, so Ezekiel's not looking at a literal temple. These are all metaphors for God's presence uh, and blessing among his people. Uh, and again, this kind of lines up with certain end times views. There's an end times view called amillennialism, that, the, that there's not a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ, that the, the millennial uh, reign is, is metaphorical, uh, and it speaks of Jesus' reign over human history through his church, through the gospel. And so those that hold that there's not a literal 1,000-year period, they have to say, well, this is not a literal temple. This is a metaphorical a temple, and that is a view. I struggle with that view because of the specificity. As we read through these chapters, you're going to see it's talking about cubits and measurements and decorations and gates and steps, seven steps here and eight steps there, and all this information, and it just doesn't feel like a metaphor to me. It feels like there's some very specific information, uh, specific measurements of this temple and then another view is the temple as the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, that this is, uh, that, that, that Ezekiel's seeing um, what the new heavens and new earth look like when God ushers in the new heavens and new earth. The only problem with that is, at the end of Revelation 21, the Bible says there's no temple. It says the Lamb is the temple. That, that the Lord God is the temple. So the Bible clearly says... When, it, when the dust settles and God ushers in the new heavens, new earth, the new Jerusalem, where we'll be uh, spending eternity with Jesus, there's no temple there. So I struggle to think that this temple is new heavens and new earth because there's no temple. Now, th those that hold to that view, look at the phrase where it says in 
verse 2, there was a, a very high mountain. They go to Revelation, a very high mountain. Um, but again, I, I believe that uh, this is not that temple. I believe, based upon the descriptions of the temple, what happens in this temple, this temple is the temple that is in that is built and in operation during the millennial reign of Christ. I believe there is really a literal 1,000-year period where Jesus reigns over the earth and before the new heavens and new earth. And during that reign, there, is, there will be a temple there, which again will be a centerpiece for worship. I believe that the Lord is allowing Ezekiel to peer into the, the, the far future to see what's happening in this temple structure during the millennial reign of Christ. Deep breath. Okay. So those are the five uh, major views. Now, there are some things we learn from this temple, and, and as, we, as we discuss these, I'll, it'll help you understand why I believe is speaking of the millennial reign of Christ. Okay. So why is God showing this temple to Ezekiel? Why does he want him to go back and tell the people about the vision that he's seen? What does he want them to learn? What does the Holy Spirit want us to learn? Let me give you four things, and then we will be through. Number one, the temple teaches of God's accessibility. Now, we're we're not going to read every verse, but I'm going to show you just a few verses in these three chapters that help us to understand some different things going on. But I, I believe the temple in the millennial reign teaches something about the accessibility of God. So look what it says in verse 5. Behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area, and the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a handbreadth in length. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed and the height, one reed. Then he went into the gateway facing east, going up its steps, and measured the threshold of the gate, one reed deep. In the side rooms, one reed long, one reed broad, space between the side rooms, five cubits, threshold of the gate, by the vestibule of the gate, at the inner end, one reed. So he's talking about the gate, the gate structure. There are rooms off to the side of the gate. And if you look down uh, in verse uh, 20 and verse 24, he mentions two other gates. So this temple complex that I believe is in the millennium, has three gates where people can come and access uh, the temple. Um, and I think this is of utmost importance. Now, there's some, there's some discussion, scholarly discussion, why three gates. Do the three gates represent anything? Some, I saw one, uh, one, read one uh, commentator that said the three gates speak of the, the Trinity, the triune God. Um, uh, there are different views on that. But anyway, uh, the Bible doesn't tell us. It just tells us that there are three gates, three ways of entrance into the temple. And I believe the fact that the centerpiece of worship, where the one true God manifests his presence, the fact that it has gates communicates something. I think it communicates that during the millennial reign, God is inviting people to come and worship. It speaks of his accessibility. And we know that God is an accessible God. God is an inviting God. In fact, I want you to turn to Luke 14 with me very quickly. Luke 14, hold your place in Ezekiel, but look with me in Luke chapter 14. If you're still with me, say amen. Luke chapter 14. If you're not, don't say anything. If you're not still with me. All right. Luke 14, verse 15. 
When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, to Jesus, Blessed is everyone who eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's going to be a blessed thing to, to be able to be with the Lord, to be in his kingdom. But he said to him, and we might even say, it'd be, it's going to be a good thing to be able to be with Jesus during the millennium. It's going to be a good thing to be with Jesus during, the, during eternity, the new heavens and new earth. Aren't you glad that because of Jesus you can be with God, right? And look what he says. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. I invited the folks you told me to invite and nobody wants to come. So look what the master says. He became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. That parable is a parable that's meant to communicate something about the heart of God. And here's what Jesus wants you to understand about God's heart. He wants people to come to him. He calls people to relationship. He's an accessible God. And the fact that people don't know the Lord is on them in this parable, right? They're invited, but they say, oh, you know, I've got some worldly cares and concerns, and I'll get to that one day, or not right now. And the Lord's saying, I invited you, and you refused my invitation. And I think the gates on this temple communicate the heart of God. That God is a God that says, come one, come all, come and worship me. You are welcome. You are invited. Aren't you glad that there are gates? God could just put a big wall around the thing and say, stay away, you sinners. And if he said that, we'd all have to stay away. Amen? But there's gates. Come close. Come worship. I believe this, this temple speaks of God's accessibility. But we've got to balance that with the next thing we learn, and that's God's exclusivity. God's exclusivity. God says, come to me, but God has a way that you come to him. You don't get to, you don't get to uh, come up with your own way. You must take the way that God has put into place. So look what it says in, back in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40. Look what it says in verse 28. Ezekiel 40, verse 28. Then he brought me to the inner court through the south gate, and he measured the south gate... It was of the same size as the others, its side rooms, its jams, its vegetable were of the same size as the others, and both it and its vestibule had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits, its breadth 25 cubits, and there were vestibules all around, 25 cubits long and 5 cubits broad. Its vestibule faced the outer court, and palm trees were on its jams, and its stairway had 8 steps. The gates had 7 steps, and you have 8 steps going up further into the temple complex. Then, verse 32, this is critical, then he brought me where? What's it say? To the inner court on the east side. He measured the gate. It was the same size as the others. 
So they've, they've come in through the gates, and now they're getting closer and closer to the centerpiece, uh, which is the holy place or the holy of holies. So skip forward to, to uh, chapter 41. Chapter 41. He brought me, verse 1, he brought me to the, new na- to the nave and measured the jams. On each side, six cubits was the breadth of the jams, and the breadth of the entrance was ten cubits. On the side walls of the entrance were five cubits on either side. He measured the length of the nave, 40 cubits, and its breadth, 20 cubits. Then he, then he went into the, what's the word, the phrase? The inner room and measured the jams of the entrance. Two cubits, entrance six cubits, side walls on either side of the entrance Seven cubits. And he measured, keep reading, he measured the length of the room, 20 cubits, and its breadth, 20 cubits across the nave. And he said to me, This is the most holy place. So, kind of look at me for a second. So, you come in through the gate and you make your way into an outer court and into an inner court. Eventually, you come to the holy place. He calls here the most holy place, which we know is the, the holy of holies, where the ark of the covenant would be in the temple. And this speaks of God's exclusivity. He invites you to come, but you've got to come his way. The ESV Study Bible says this about the the journey from the, the gate to the most holy place. It says, The eastern gate begins the tour... Uh, it says, the east-west axis of the temple should be noted. If a line is drawn from the east gate to the most holy place, there, listen to this, there's a sequence, and taking all the measurements into view, there's a sequence of three elevations. So you, you enter the gate and you're going up, up, up towards the most holy place. As the space in the inner temple becomes increasingly constricted. So you're going up. And you're going to a more and more narrow space until you come to the most holy place. I believe that pictures there is one way to God. The way that God has ordained. And Jesus makes it very, very clear in John 14, 6 what that way is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Listen, no one comes to the Father except through me. Quite a claim. That's exclusive. There's only one way to be saved. Only one way to have a relationship with God. So I believe the the temple complex speaks of God's accessibility. Come one, come all. But it also speaks of his exclusivity. You've got to come my way. The way I've prescribed. I believe this speaks of Jesus being the only way of salvation. But third, and this is where it's going to get kind of a, it's it's going to blow our minds for a minute. The vision of the temple teaches humanity's need for a Savior. Humanity's need for a Savior. Now look back in chapter 40. Chapter 40. And look in verse 38. The Bible says, There was a chamber with its door in the vestibule of the gate where the burnt offering was to be washed. Hmm. Millennial temple, thousand-year reign of Christ, after the tribulation, after the second coming, and they're offering burnt offerings? They're offering sacrifices? It says, the burnt offering, verse 39, the sin offering, the guilt offering were to be slaughtered 
And off to the side, on the outside, as one goes up to the entrance of the north gate, were two tables. Off to the other side of the vestibule of the gate were two tables. Four tables were on either side of the gate. Eight tables in which to slaughter. There are four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offering, a cubit and a half long and a cubit and a half broad, and one cubit high in which the instruments were to be laid with which the burnt offerings and the sacrifices were slaughtered. And hooks, a handbreadth long, were fastened all around within. On the tables, the flesh of the offering was to be laid. It also speaks of sacrifices in chapter 43, verses 13 through 27. So what in the world's going on? Why are they sacrificing animals in this temple? Head scratcher, right? Because you've heard me say before, many times from the pulpit, we don't sacrifice animals anymore. The sacrificial system pointed to the ultimate sacrifice who is Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the ultimate sacrifice. There's no need now for the sacrificial system. The, 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 the foreshadowing doesn't need to be in place anymore because Jesus died. And so why in the world, this is after the cross, after the resurrection, after the tribulation, after the second coming, why in the world are they sacrificing animals at this temple? Why are there priests? There's a priesthood. You can read about it as you read through this text. Why do they have burnt offering tables? Why, do they, why are they sacrificing? What is going on? Are you curious? I, I, was, I was curious as I studied this text. Well, I believe that the sacrifices that are happening in the temple during the millennium had the exact same function as the Old Testament sacrifices. So you say, Pastor Wade, what, why did they sacrifice animals in the Old Testament? Well, well, turn to Hebrews 10. The Bible tells us very clearly, Hebrews chapter 10. Just hang with me for a minute. Hebrews 10, verse 1. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, that's a long sentence. I heard a pastor in Memphis named Bob Pittman preach on this when I was in seminary. And I'll never forget it because he said, okay, look at verse 1. He said, underline the phrase, the law. Then he said, underline the phrase, can never. And then underline the phrase, make perfect. How do you summarize verse 1? Listen, the law can never make perfect. The, law can never, the purpose of the sacrificial system was not to save. It was to point to the Savior. Because look what he says in the next verse. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? In other words, if the, if the killing of animals washed away their sin, you, you wouldn't have to kill any more animals, right? Why do they have to keep killing animals? Look what he says. In these sacrifices, verse 3, this is critical, there is a reminder of sins every year. So why did God institute the sacrificial system? To remind them every year, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Innocent blood must be shed to cover my guilt and shame. And all of these sacrificed animals pointed to Jesus, who came as the perfect Lamb of God and died for our sins 
shed his blood so we could be washed clean and forgiven of our sins. Isn't that good? So the, the, the sacrifices did not save. They pointed to the Savior. They were a reminder of sins every year. A reminder, watch this, of people's need for a Savior. Now, back to the millennial reign of Christ. This is where we're gonna, it's going to hurt your head for a minute, okay? When Jesus Christ returns, or at the end of the, the tribulation, rapture and second coming, when that happens... The Bible says that the dead in Christ will rise. He's going, to, he's going to call dead believers from the ground. And when they're raised from the ground, they will be given brand new glorified bodies. Can I get a witness? you got a new body coming if you know Christ, all right? Those who are alive when Jesus Christ returns, will be, 1 Thessalonians 4, will be caught up in the air. And the implication is that's when we get our new glorified bodies. So, resurrection, rapture, Christians get brand new glorified bodies. They'll never perish, never be corrupted. They're, they're perfect bodies that we'll live in for all of eternity. All right, pretty cool. So, when Jesus Christ sets up his reign on this earth, there's going to be some, some folks walking around like me and you. I plan to be there with a glorified body. And we'll see each other on the street and say, boy, you look great. And you'll say the same to me, all right? But there will be some other people there. There are going to be people that survive the tribulation. They'll be in the millennium. So this blows my mind, and I don't know what this exactly looks like, but on, during the millennial reign of Christ, I believe there will be people with brand new glorified bodies and people with unglorified bodies. That'll, that'll, just like our bodies, will decay and die. Those people will have children, and they'll have children's children, and, and, and there'll be a, a population on the earth of people without glorified bodies. That's why when Revelation says Satan is unleashed at the end of the thousand years, a lot of people follow him. They're deceived by him and follow Satan. Who are those people? They're people who were in the millennium that weren't glorified, that weren't in a glorified state. If you're a Christian, you won't follow Satan at the end of the thousand-year reign. You're, you're glorified in Christ. You'll always be with him. That's not going to happen to you. Who's going to be led astray? These other folks who were not saved at the time of Christ's return that do not have glorified bodies. This blows your mind, doesn't it? Isn't this crazy? So here's where we get back to the temple. I believe the sacrificial system will be reinstituted with the exact same purpose as the Old Testament sacrificial system. To remind the people that are still on the earth, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You, you, you have sinned against a holy God. And guess what? Just like this animal was, was sacrificed, his blood was shed 2,000 years ago or farther during the millennium, Jesus came and died on the cross. He shed his blood. In a way, the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to the cross. I believe the sacrifices in the millennial reign will point back toward the cross. Does that make sense? They'll point backwards. So, for example, um, we practice the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder of what Christ has done for us, right? But the Lord's Supper is for Christians. 
What about people who are maybe not followers of Christ? They're under the reign of Christ. He's ruling over the earth. Perfect peace will be accomplished. But they don't have glorified bodies. They're not born again, perhaps. They're going to need to be reminded of the sacrificial death of Christ for their sins. And the sacrificial system will be instituted to be a visual reminder to those living on the earth during the millennial reign that Jesus shed his blood for the sins of humanity and they need a Savior. Does that make sense? Don't start asking questions, Barry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Say it. They'll be able to say, which, so Josh and I were having this conversation today. The fact that there will be people on the earth, they'll see Jesus ruling and reigning. They'll see Christians like us with glorified bodies, like we're living it up, right? And they still won't bow their knee to Jesus. Proves just how wicked humanity is. There are, are going to be people that see Jesus reigning and accomplishing perfect peace in a thousand years, and yet they still turn and follow Satan. Wow. Yes, I believe people will be saved during the millennial reign. Yeah. Yep. Again, sacrificial system to remind them they need a Savior. Yes. So, God's accessibility, God's ex- exclusivity. Uh, humanity's need for a Savior. And then, very quickly, last one, and and we'll go into church conference. I I had a lot of stuff tonight. Sorry. Last one is this. And if you have questions, we can talk about it afterwards tonight. God's promise that His glory will return to His people. Now, here's the big picture. I don't want you to get so caught up in which temple and and all of that. I believe there's a a major message that God's trying to get through to His people. And it it goes back to Ezekiel chapter 10. If you remember Ezekiel chapter 10, the Lord allowed Ezekiel to see a vision of the temple in Jerusalem during his time. And if you remember, the elders, the leaders, had their back turned to God and they were worshiping idols in the temple. Remember that? And the Lord allowed Ezekiel to see God's glory actually leave the temple. The Lord said... You turn your back to me, I will turn my back to you. And God's glory, God's presence, God's favor, God's blessing left his people. And Ezekiel preached that message. And so surely there are people in captivity in Babylon that are thinking, will we ever have God's glory like we used to? Will God ever dwell among us like he used to? Will we ever experience his favor and his blessing like we used to? I mean, we were so rebellious. He, he turned his back upon us. He left. We don't have his presence anymore. And this vision of the future temple is God's way of saying, guess what? One day I will dwell again among my people with power and with favor and with blessing. He, what he's doing here is he's giving people hope. Giving people hope. This is God's promise that his glory will return to his people. So when we get back uh, into Ezekiel, next time we're together, we'll talk about some more aspects of the temple. There's a river running out of the temple that gets deeper and deeper. We'll talk about that. Uh, so some good stuff coming up. Uh, we're getting close to the end. Uh, And this is difficult stuff to kind of wrap our minds around, but it's important. It's important. These passages teach us significant truths about the Lord. 
Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.